have a Bible nearby, let's go together to Ruth chapter 1. There's a a lot that I feel like uh, needs to be said tonight, and so I'm going to try to be as efficient as I can. But I think something that may help uh, a little bit, um, you've you've heard me uh, over, if you've been around for a while here at the ring, various stories about my family and, and stuff like that. And I have told the story before about my my dad's parents and and them. There's just one of the, one of the stories that st- sticks out to me in my upbringing was them praying together in the garden. How they were talking about a possible re- relocation of the family. And they just stopped what they were doing and they knelt and they prayed. Um, on the other side of my family, my mom's parents, they had uh, one of the uh, and also very a very cool experience with them that to me helps understand a little bit of what we're gonna where we're gonna go tonight. Uh, I might have some of the details wrong, so um, you can check with my parents later to see if that's true. But uh, I was in high school, and it was my grandparents' wedding anniversary, and we went to Ralph and Kaku's on Airline Highway, which I don't think is even existing, existing anymore. And they had a, a jazz brunch, and uh, they had like a, like a, this little jazz combo that would play, and people would come you know, eat brunch or whatever, and it was supposed to be this like swanky kind of deal. So uh, we took them for their anniversary to go, and uh, my parents knew some of the musicians and stuff, and so we're like, let's go do this, take you f- for your anniversary and stuff. So, so we go, and we're the only people in the room, as I recall. And uh, so it's like us and like 20 tables and a jazz combo over there, and they're awesome, you know. So, uh, so we, were, we were good to go, you know, great company, great music, uh, room all to ourselves, you know, it was awesome. And so my grandparents started talking about, like, they would play a song, the, you know, the, the combo would play a song, and my grandparents would know it from when they were kids. And they said, oh, I remember this song, we loved to dance to this song when we were kids. And they started talking about how that's how they would spend, like, recess at school, is they would go and they would put on the Nickelodeon, which is a jukebox, I guess, type thing. Uh, back then, they would play records, and they would just, like, swing dance. during. That was recess for them uh, from a very young age. And, and that's how they spent their free time. They just they danced, just, just danced and danced and danced. And uh, so my grandfather, he married his best friend's younger sister, and so, uh, so my grandparents basically knew each other from a very young age all the way through. And so they were always dance partners coming up through, through school and into high school and college. And, you know, they got married and stuff like that. And uh, <laughs> nobody saw that. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. So um, the podcast people are not going to know what just happened. Um, so they were dance partners for, just for a long, long time. And so they were talking about how much they like to dance and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And then somebody at the table was like, well, y'all should, you should dance now, you know. And uh, they're like, oh, no, oh, no. And then I think somebody suggested it like one more time. They're like, okay, we'll dance. And so we, uh, we got permission because you should always do this in a restaurant. We, we got permission. But we pushed, pushed all the tables aside and made like a little dance floor area. And they just like, when they started dancing, like jitterbugging and stuff, it was, it was art, 
you know, like it was just amazing. And I had never seen, uh, you know, we didn't have those, these great reality shows back then to where you learn various dances. Uh, not that I watch them now, but um, <laughs> at that time, I'd just never seen that kind of dancing, especially like not up close and, and personal with people that I knew and loved. Like it was just fascinating to me. And so, one, two, three, go. There we go. All right. Uh, I'd never seen it before. But it, w- it went beyond the fact that they're really good dancers. They were, they were just like in sync with each other in, in this really crazy way. And so my, my grandfather, was, he was leading. And so uh, and at one point it dawned on me. I was like, they haven't done this in years. Yet it looks like they've been practicing like every day for the past like couple of months. Because it was just seamless. And, and he led her, and she went right with it, and she didn't know where he was going, but he knew, and he knew exactly how to, how to cue her and all this kind of stuff. And they, and they, they danced just song after song after song, and it just never got old. And it's, and it's something that I've never forgotten and will always cherish being able to watch that happen. But to watch them together and to watch him lead in such a way that was so beautiful um, was... was uh, to me, it, this helps me understand God a little bit more. And, and so I want you to kind of imagine that in, in your mind. And, uh, because in the book of Ruth, we see, we see a dance that happens. Uh, but it's not between two people in that sense. We see the, a dance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. We see the, the dance that happens and, you know, the, the, the term free will is like a big, it's a big hot button issue. And sovereignty is another one. And in certain circles of Christianity, uh, basically just like nerds are really into like debating all this kind of stuff, or whatever. And I think most of us aren't really that concerned about some of those debates. Um, but when I talk about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, what I'm saying is, is you have this dance between the fact that God knows everything and is in control of everything, and is always holding things together, and is guiding things along just like he likes. And at the same time, you and I are free to make choices. We have this capacity that he's given us to choose some things. And a lot of people want to pick one or the other. You know, is God sovereign and controls everything, or is man free, and, and we are the ones that determine stuff. And, and to me, there are a couple that are dancing together where God, God is leading but they danced together a lot like my grandparents did. And in the book of Ruth, I think we see, I think we see this. And so we're going to cover the whole book, not verse by verse, but we're going to cover it. Uh, so look at, look at verse 1, if you will. Ruth 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. All right, we're going to leave this verse up. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Okay, we're going to just stop right there. All right? The, the famine was not an accident. The famine was not a, um, you know, a weird weather pattern. It wasn't, uh, you know, just poor planning on the part of the farmers. Famine was something that God used and so, if, if you're taking notes, this would be a hard, hard one to take notes of uh, for, but let me just, just kind of make this first general point, okay? That God is not random. I've said it a lot in my life, and I'll probably keep saying it, that God is not random. He is calculated. He is intentional. He has a purpose and a plan 
for everything. And so the fact that there was a famine is not just a coincidence. God used famine in pretty specific ways. Look at, uh, you don't have to turn to it, but we'll put it on the screen. Uh, Leviticus 26, 3 and 4. This is what God tells his people. He says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season. And the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Okay? He's saying, when you're obedient, I'll make it rain. That's, that's, that's how this is going to work. Later in the, in the chapter, uh, in verse 14 and 15, we see this. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant. Uh, and then he lists a bunch of, like, bunch of things. And then in verse 20, this is at the end of the list. Uh, this is what it says. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Um, you read in the Old Testament about, about God shutting up the heavens, and then at other times God opening up the heavens. That's literally talking about rain. This was not a, you know, a couple hundred years B.C. understanding of agriculture, and, and whatever. This wasn't this worldview that they created in order to help them understand things. Uh, we, at the ring, we have a high view of Scripture, meaning that we believe that it's true and that God handed this down. And so God's literally telling them, um, be obedient, it's going to rain, you're going to have an abundance of crops, and when you're not obedient, I'm going to withhold the rain, and you're going to be really, really hungry. Now, why would God do that? Is he a, is he a cosmic bully, you know, whatever? No, it's not it at all. Um, human nature, we, are, we tend to, when things are really great, we tend to reroute the credit to ourselves, right? And, some, and when we reroute the credit to ourselves, we become disobedient and prideful and whatever. And so this is God's way of telling them, on, you know, in Leviticus 26, he's like, look, there are going to be times when it's not going to rain. And when it's not raining, you need to pay attention because it means I'm withholding it because I'm going to use the I'm going to use the lack of rain in in order to to yell at you to get you to look at me because there's a problem. And C.S. Lewis says that pain is God's megaphone that's used to arouse a deaf world, and that's basically echoing what God is saying here. I'm going to use famine to get your attention. All right. So in Ruth one verse one, we see that there's a famine. If you look. If you look at the, the verse that precedes this, um, it's in the book of Judges. Uh, you'll notice in Ruth 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled. Look at the very last verse in the book of Judges. It says this. Um, this is twenty one twenty five. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I read a verse last week talking about how a new generation came along and they didn't know who God was and they didn't know who he had done. And so they started doing whatever was right in their own opinion. And so what did God do? God withheld rain. He just withheld it. He said, okay, I'm, I'm going to let you suffer until you look at me. When you look at me, I'm going to tell you what's wrong and then you can repent and then it's going to rain like crazy and everything's going to be okay. God uses that. God is not random. So what does that have to do with, with us? Well, we have to, to think about the fact that, um, that God is always at work in our lives. 
And he's always either causing things to happen or he's allowing things to happen. And regardless of if he's causing it or allowing it, he, he uses it to get our attention to shape us, grow us, sanctify us, make us holy, discipline, correct, you know, convict, whatever. So God's always at work and he's always using these things. And so the takeaway from this part would really be just pay attention to your life. Just pay attention to what God's doing. So here's this, here's this, uh, all these Israelites, and they're in this famine. Okay? Well, it's pretty easy to pay attention when you have nothing to eat. God was trying to use it to get their attention. For us, if we just pay attention to the things that are going on in our lives, we'll realize, like, wow, God's, God's trying to, he's trying to tell me something. So if you're paying attention to your life, sometimes you realize, like, wow, I've, I've been really, really angry lately. I wonder what that's all about. I've been super impatient. I've become really, really judgmental. I've been so prone to lust lately, or I've been really drawn to, to materialism, or there's just so many things. I can come up with all kinds of examples. We have to pay attention to those patterns in our lives and realize that God is using our pain and our discomfort in order to try to get our attention. And I think this, this is a lesson for us. You know, we're talking about stewardship in our community groups this summer, about stewardship of time and money. We, we have to be good stewards of pain. We have to be good stewards of pain. Because when God causes pain or allows pain, whatever it is, He wants to use it to grow us. And it's not always because we're disobedient. Sometimes pain just comes our way and there's not much we can do about it. But regardless, he wants to use that in our lives to sharpen us and to make us more like him. So God is not random. Therefore, we should be paying attention to our lives. All right. So, so there's the sovereignty aspect of, of this verse. Now look at the next part. Um, well, let me say this too. A bad application of what I just said would be to begin to over-examine every little minute detail of your life. You'll drive yourself crazy. You'll drive your friends crazy. You'll drive your community group crazy. You'll drive us all crazy. If you start to take every bad thing that happens in your life and be like, God, why did I have a flat tire? Okay, you had a flat tire because there's a nail in the road. All right? God's not trying to discipline you. He's not like, well, let's, let's track your quiet times and your tithing. You know, it's not, it's not, God doesn't work like that. So please don't, don't get into that pattern where, where you just freak out every time something bad happens. But what I am saying is like, look, just pay attention to your life. Just look at, the, look at those big things. And it's like, God, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? If you really work everything together for your glory and for my good, then I want this to become good. Uh, so yeah, don't, don't get super minute and whatever about it, but pay attention to your lives. So there's the sovereignty, but then look back at verse 1 in Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, okay? And so in the days when every man just did whatever was right in his own eyes, there was a famine, because God was trying to get their attention. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, so we know that his name is Elimelech, which is in the next verse. Uh, so God is not random, which includes his decision to give us the capacity to choose, also known as our free will. So God is, is 
very uh, intentional, very purposed in the fact that he has created us this way to be able to make a choice. So this guy, Elimelech, famine hits, and, and he could go one of two ways. He could say, hey, God's trying to get our attention. There's sin in the land. We need to return to him. We need to repent. He's, withhold, he's with, withheld rain from the heavens. We need to return to him so that he will open those heavens up and flood our fields so that we can, can live. He could have done that, but what does he do? No. He says, we're out of here. We want to find food. I know where there's some food. Moab. Now, what's weird about that, and people who think, who think I'm maybe exaggerating about like this, like how specific God is with this famine, look, get on a map and look how close Bethlehem is to Moab. There's no way that two places that close, one would have a famine and one would have plenty of food if God weren't drawing the lines of where the rain's going to go. All right? So they travel, and it's not far at all. Um, and, and so they, they go to leave. Now, now, God has given us the capacity to choose, and I'll just go ahead and say this. Elimelech makes the wrong decision in this situation. But you say, yeah, but like all this good stuff happened. I know all this good stuff happened, but Elimelech made the wrong choice. I'm not saying it wasn't an informed decision, because I'm sure that it was. And it's easy to say, oh, we shouldn't be too hard on him. I mean, he's a husband and a father. And wouldn't any husband and father do whatever they could to provide for their family? And I say, yes, they absolutely would. Um, and in this case, instead of living by faith, he lived by sight. And so his choice was to take the bull by the horns, take matters into his own hands, and go find food, rather than being a real man and leading his family in repentance and returning to God. Elimelech made the wrong decision. It wasn't inf- I was saying it was uninformed or that he didn't have really good reasons, but he was wrong. Okay? And if you look, uh, look at verse 2, uh, the, man, uh, of, uh, the name of the man was Limelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilon. Uh, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judea. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Okay, so they go, and we see in verse 3 what happens when you disobey God and make the wrong decision. Verse 3, but Limelech, the husband of Naomi, died. I'm just kidding. Don't worry. And don't quote me as saying, God, Josh said when you make the wrong choice, you die. That's not what I'm saying. But the truth is, this dude died. He left famine to try and, and find better life, and he actually found death. Now, did God cause him to die? We have no, we have no reason to think that God was like, watch this, crush. We don't know. But certainly God allowed him to die. And he allowed the two sons to die. What we should not take away from this is like, okay, so make the wrong choice, God kills you. That's not right. That's not why we have that part of the story. Here's, here's why we have, we have that detail of the story to focus on for a second, especially in the context of sovereignty and free will. Our choices have real consequences. Our choices really matter. So the sovereign God of the universe is controlling everything, holding it together, moving it along in the direction that he wants to go, at the pace he wants to go. And yet, at the very same time, we're making decisions that have a real impact on people, on circumstances, on ourselves. So it's a dance. 
the two are working together. The sovereign God of the universe dances with humanity. He takes the lead. He knows the rhythm. He knows the steps. He knows everything. He invites us into the dance. He says, would you like to dance with me? Would you like your free will to dance with my sovereignty? I'll lead. It'll be awesome. Elimelech said, no. I don't want to dance with you. I want to take the lead. I know this song. I know these steps. I'm a little better at dancing than you are. And God says, I ain't going to make you dance with me. He made his choices. He wound up dying. That's the way it goes. That's Elimelech's story. We should learn from it. But we should also learn from Ruth and her example. So if we keep looking, look at verse 15. Chapter 1. Elimelech dies. The two boys had married two local girls in Moab. The boys die. You got Naomi and her two daughters-in-law. She says, girls, y'all stay here. Find husbands. Be here. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. One of them stays. Naomi makes this pledge. And he's, uh, verse 15, she said, see your, uh, this is Naomi talking, says, see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. All right? So, sovereignty and free will, dancing together. Is, is, the, is the, the fact that Ruth is going to return to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, is that God's decision or is that, Naomi's, is that Ruth's decision? Is this God making this happen or is this Ruth making this happen? And what I would say is, yes. Absolutely. And not because I, I don't want to pick a position, because I think both positions are true. That we see here the sovereignty of God dancing with the free will of Ruth in this, this perfect, beautiful dance where he's leading. Now, what, what makes me think that? Because that's not in the text. So you kind of have to, understand, have to look at the whole story. They've lived in Moab for 10 years. So of those ten years, let's just assume that five of those years the boys were, were married. So let's say that Ruth and Naomi have been around for half of, the, half of that time. Over that course of events and that length of time, Ruth came to love her husband and his family, became a part of their belief system and how they did things. Over time, this connection developed and so somehow they, she watched her father-in-law pass away, watched her brother-in-law pass away, and watched her husband pass away. And certainly those women bonded together in their grief. And so over several, several years of, of connection and growing together, I believe that the sovereignty of God knitted together in this perfect fashion leading up to this moment 
exactly what she should do. So does, is God manipulating Ruth and be like, you will, you will go with her? And she's like, oh, I don't know. I feel like I'm supposed to just go with you. No, you read those words. That's not a flippant decision. That's not a, I don't know, I'll do you know, whatever or, or whatever. It's not an emotional decision. This, is, this has been in the works for a long time. So I believe that God led her to this point. That God shaped this in her over time. But she was on board. He brought her on board slowly, 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 slowly. Sometimes, this is how God works. Over time, he, he shapes our desires right on, on board with his. And, but that's a willing thing. We go along with it. We go along with it. What I think this is, is I, th- I think that Ruth basically learned how to dance with the sovereignty of God over time. She learned what it's like. She learned to be led by him. She learned the steps. She learned the music. She learned the rhythm. She learned everything. And here she's just putting it into play. Sometimes God does this with us. It's what Nietzsche called a a long obedience in the same direction. You don't hear a lot of Nietzsche quotes in sermons. So take, take it for whatever it's worth. But that's what a long obedience in the same direction. What we see here with, with that learning to dance is that it's something that happens slowly, happens over time. This is the fruit of, of abiding, whether they termed it that or not. This is, this is something that, that, that God did. And, and what's frustrating about that sometimes, it's, it's very hard to detect. It's slow. It's just not very apparent that that growth and connection is happening. But she's learned to dance slowly over a long period of time. This, this is how God interacts with us. He doesn't immediately expect us to know, to know what that dance with him and his sovereignty is supposed to look like. And so he teaches it to us. And so in our lives, there are some things that, that lead to that. And so we do those things. It's just that simple. And that's why, after you've been walking with Jesus for a while, it's weird how your desires like, change drastically from when you first started walking with him. And that maturity that's present now, that, that wasn't the case two years ago, and it'll not be the case in two years, because if you, if you keep walking with him, he's leading you down paths of righteousness for his namesake. He's leading you in the way everlasting. That's, that's how it works. He's teaching you how to dance. That's it. But here's, the, here's the, where the hang-up comes, is that most of us, don't, we don't want that kind of growth. We just, like, we just want to know, in the moment, what do I need to do? And a lot of times, we want to see our lives change. You make your mind up of, of, I want my life to look different in this area of life. And when it doesn't happen instantly, we get super mad. We're like, why won't God just fix me? Why won't he just make me not want this anymore? Why, why doesn't he just, you know, whatever? And it's not like the Matrix where he can just download how to, how to dance with him into your mind. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, I know how to dance. That's not how it works with him. It's not all of a sudden I know how to obey. I know how to do this and this and this. That's not how it works. And so if you're here and you're frustrated because God won't fix you, then you need to understand that dancing with the Lord is something, that's, it's the fruit of an abiding life. And it just comes with time. And because God is not random, that's the best possible way for you to learn to dance with him. And so that's what we see with that part of Ruth. If we keep looking, I wrote this, wrote this down, it may not make sense. A long obedience requires a bunch of short steps. 
Look in chapter 2, verse, verse 2. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Here's the, here's the thing. The short steps that lead to a long obedience, it, this is, let me just describe it this way. We act in faith based on what we know to be true. So the truth we know, we act in faith based on that truth. So Ruth, she says, I'm going to go to the fields and glean and trust that someone will find favor. So what is the truth that she knows? She knows that in Israel, that's the law handed down to the owners of these fields, that they are to leave, like leave some on the margins of the field for the poor and the widows and the, and the sojourners. So she knows that to be true. And so in faith, she's going, believing that God's going to bring her somebody that will have favor on her and let her come along and, and pick that grain out of the field. Here's, here's the, the thing. She acts. She doesn't just sit back and say, well, God needs to fix our situation because he killed my husband and he did this and this and this and this. She doesn't pout. She doesn't throw a fit. She doesn't listen to her mother-in-law who's kind of going through her own stuff. She says, no, I, I know that, that this is the truth of what this community is based on. I'm going to trust that, that God's in this and I'm going I'm to go forward based on what I know to be true in faith that God is good. Those are the, that, those are the short steps of a long obedience. That's where you learn to dance with the Lord. You say, okay, here's, here's what I know to be true about, about a situation you're facing, about a sin that you're struggling with, about insecurities and your life not turning out like you thought it would, and you, you name it. And in the midst of that pain, you stop and you say, okay, what do I know to be true? And I'm, I'm going to act on that in faith, believing that God is good. And you start piling up those short steps. One of the most freeing things I've ever heard was from Andrew Murray. And he basically said, uh, don't worry about abiding for the rest of your life. Just worry about abiding today. And, and then don't worry about even abiding today. Worry about abiding like in these moments right now. Like, I'll worry about that later. Right now, I'm going to dig in. And that's what it takes, these short steps that build up to this long obedience. That's where you learn to dance with the Lord. You look at what's true and you act in faith based on that. And you do that moment by moment, day after day, week after week. And next thing you know, you're dancing with Him. And not only are you dancing with Him, your, your desires, your free will, is you're just following His lead. And then he says, this is the song of the day, and this is how fast it goes, and this, and this is how we're going to do it. Now you just grab on, I'm going to lead you, but you're going to have to do something. God's not going to just like, fix you necessarily. We, we're going to act, but he's going to show you how to act, and he's going to empower you how to act, and he's going he's to guide you along. Next you know, you're like, whoa, we're jitterbugging. He's like, yeah, exactly. I'm pretty good at it. And that's what is happening with Ruth, is that she is, she is dancing with the Lord in faith. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Well, actually, uh, verse 3 of the previous one. Uh, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. Uh, she happened to come to the field. So, 
So she acts in faith on what she knows to be true. And she happens, with air quotes, to come upon the field belonging to one of her kinsmen redeemers. So again, did, did she do it or did God do it? Yes. Together. She acted. He blessed, empowered, and guided her, led her right to that field. She'd never done this dance before, but she trusted. And he led her right to where she needed to go. And then we see in verse 3, uh, in chapter 3, verse 9, it leads her to her um, husband slash redeemer. Um, she said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. So um, go to chapter 4. So basically, uh, she happens on the field of Boaz. They develop this relationship. She says, hey, if you want to redeem me, I'm totally in. He's like, okay, I definitely want to. However, there's a kinsman who's closer than me. And so I don't, I'm not even going to get into kinsman redeemer right now. Basically, a relative could marry her and keep all the property and all the debt and all the whatever in the, in the family. And so he's saying, I definitely want to marry you and thereby redeem you. But there's someone who uh, technically is a closer kinsman than me. So if he wants to redeem you, uh, we've got to go that route. But if he won't do it, I'll definitely do it. So look at chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Coincidence? I think not. Uh, So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Uh, Boaz is obviously uh, important. Um, Then he said to, to the Redeemer, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of these sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So Boaz is like, hey, I don't know if you know, uh, this is the situation. Do you want to redeem this land? The dude's like, yeah, free land? Awesome. I'm in. And then Boaz, uh, being awesome, he says, uh, verse 5, Then Boaz said, oh, by the way, that's my, I add that in. By the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Notice he drops in uh, her name, that she's a foreigner, and that her last husband died. And that he's going to have to probably have kids with her in order to like make this Redemption happen, all right? So, if some dude's like, hey, hey, you want some free land? Yeah. He's like, oh yeah, by the way, it comes with a woman whose last husband died, and you're going to probably have to have kids with her. And he's like, oh yeah, and she's a foreigner, and we hate foreigners. And the dude's like, uh, not real sure about that. Boaz didn't have to bring all that detail in, but I love that he did, because it proves that he really just digs her. And he's like, this will work. So, uh, then the Redeemer said, uh, I cannot redeem it. <laughs> on second thought, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Uh, which basically is saying, like, if the more kids I have, the, uh, me and my wife had this plan for our kids, and it's going to cut it into their inheritance. It's going to just mess all kinds of stuff up. So he says, no, uh, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Um, so 
looking good, right? Everything's cool. Uh, then it gets a little strange. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a con- transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. This is the manner of attesting in Israel. I'm glad we, we shake hands now instead of exchanging shoes. Uh, then there, so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilon and Malon. Also, by the way, Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in a path... Yeah, and uh, I I practiced it. I just, I can't remember... Uh, May you, be, uh, may you act worthily and uh, be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went in to her, and the Lord gave him her conception, and she bore a son. Then the, woman, uh, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you, this is beautiful, a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, which is not what it sounds like. It's like a, like a foster mom, kind of. Uh, and the women of the neighborhood came, gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wait, what? Keep going. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. That would be King David, um, the king of Israel. So, chapter 4 not only uh, like ties up nicely, and you're like, okay, so they get, they get to be married, and everything's okay. They get to be married, then they have kids. Their kids have kids, and their kids have kids, and one of those kids is named David. Then David had kids, kids, kid, 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 Jesus. Now, this is not just about the fact that, whoa, Ruth gets to be David's like great grandmother, and then she gets to be in the lineage of, of Jesus. That's that's awesome, but that's not why this is significant. Here's why this is significant. Um, this means this brings Gentile blood into the bloodline of David for the third time, which brings Gentile blood into the bloodline of Jesus three times over. So the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. For all humanity was not Jewish blood. It was all of our blood. The sovereignty of God. Dancing with his people. And I'll start it with the fact that Elimelech just did what he wanted. He didn't want to dance with God. God says, I won't make you dance with me. But I'm still going to accomplish what I want to accomplish. Or I'm going to do something beautiful in your midst. 
And hundreds of years later, people are going to be talking about this story and what I did and how I sent my son to shed the blood of everybody. So, three quick takeaways. Number one, um, pay attention to your life because God is not random. Just pay attention to your life. Take time to assess what's going on with you. Don't get so caught up in being super busy and work and family and this and this and this that you never take the time to sit down and you be like, okay, Lord, search me, try me, test me, lead me. Pay attention to your life. God is not random. He's purpose and intentional. So just pay attention. Second thing is just learn to dance. Just learn, learn to dance. Take the short steps that lead to a long obedience in the same direction. Take the short steps like, like Ruth did, where she acted on what she knew to be true, and she trusted God to do something, but he piles all those up to where her desires are his desires. Learn to dance with him in those things. And the third thing, third takeaway is don't be dumb. We cannot be dumb. Just because our sovereign God is able to make beautiful things come out of our stupid decisions doesn't give us license or excuse to just go do whatever we want and be like, well, God, I'll just fix it. God, I'll just fix it. God, I'll just fix it. This is, this is not license. This is grace. And grace just draw, it draws us near. So don't look at this and be like, oh, man, uh, like, it's so great that God's just going to like make everything okay. But yeah, you don't use that as a reason to sin. Use that as a reason to want to dance with Him. Why would you want God to always have to be to always be fixing your life? That's stupid. That's not what abiding life is. Not what abundant life is. Use it. Use that knowledge to be like, okay, it's it's good to know. Good to know that God that it'll be okay. But at the same time, I I don't want to ever put God in a position to like mend and fix things because I was just too prideful and too dumb, too self-centered to say, no, I'll, I'll dance. I'll take the short steps. You form the long obedience. And so it's so good to know at the same time, though, that no matter, no matter where you are, obedient, disobedient, somewhere in the middle trying to figure it out, that God's with you. He's leading you forward. He's cleaning up the mess behind you. And he's on each side of you encouraging you that we're completely surrounded and hemmed in by our God all the time. We should be blessed by that reality. We see it in Ruth. We see it in our own lives. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, Lord, uh, I don't really know exactly what to say. Um, because when I stop and I think about those, just that, that truth right there. That you are, are always before me, leading me, inviting me into that, that dance, inviting me to act on what I know to be true, to trust you, and that you're forming that into something, something beautiful. You're reshaping my desires and my understanding and
You're just constantly saying, come on, let me lead you. God, thank you that, that you lead us in our free will, that, that we have that capacity to choose, and over time, we choose you more and more and more. It's just a natural thing. And much like my grandparents, we end up in this dance that looks so just natural and effortless. We thank you that that's what you do in us, and pray that you'll give us the courage to pursue that. And I ask God that you just maybe make this real to us tonight, in a, in a, just in a new way, that you make your, your nearness, your willing leadership and redemption, your, your sovereignty that goes behind us and, and really just kind of cleans up after us, the fact that you're on each side of us and encouraging and empowering, that you help us to see ourselves as just just immersed in your goodness and your presence. Help us to connect that truth to wherever, wherever all of us are tonight as individuals. And we need you to connect those dots. And so I ask God that you would, just in these next few moments, you would do that for everybody that's here. That none of us would push away from that invitation. But that we would draw near and ask for that reality to be okay.